Welcome back. Welcome back. For those of you who maybe weren't here last week, no, I am not Pastor Dan. Pastor Dan is going to be out convalescing for a number of weeks uh, after his neck surgery. Uh, I spoke to him this week, and uh, he is making progress, a little bit slow progress, but he's getting there. So your continued prayers for him are much appreciated. Um, we're believing God for good things, and you know, it's, it's difficult living in constant pain. Amen. And so we believe for Pastor Dan that this is going to hopefully give him a real shot in the arm, that he's going to come back energized and refreshed and, and uh, hopefully pain-free as well. So just keep him in your prayers. Well, this morning, we are going to continue our series called Famous Last Words. Famous Last Words. Looking at Paul's last words to Timothy before he was martyred for Jesus. Now, last week, you might remember, we looked at chapter 1, uh, and we learned that the gospel demands a response from every Christ follower. You can't be neutral when it comes to the gospel. That's because of a few things. If we could change to that next slide, there's a few th reasons why we can't be neutral. First of all, because the demands of truth call us to be bold. The demands of truth call us to be bold. Secondly, because the demands of truth call us to hold on to it tightly. And third, the demands of truth call us to actively defend it. And we're going to see these themes resurface uh, multiple times over the next several weeks. And now that we understand what truth demands of us, Paul's going to get a little more specific about how that should play out in our life and ministry. Uh, how many of you remember a guy by the name of Yogi Berra? Yogi Berra. Yeah, the guy, the guy who talked nonstop, always had something to say. He was the well-known catcher for the New York Yankees. And there was Hank Aaron. You know who Hank Aaron was? The Hall of Fame hitter for the Milwaukee Braves. And the teams, those two teams were playing in the World Series one year. Now, most people, as I said, remember Yogi for his nonstop chatter. He always... Never at a loss for words. Always had something to say. He wanted to, ch uh, to, to charge up his teammates. That's one of the reasons he talked all the time. But he also wanted to distract the other team's batters. He's usually pretty good at it. But as Hank Aaron came to the plate, Yogi tried to distract him by saying, Hey, Henry, you're holding the bat wrong. <laughs> you're supposed to hold it so you can read the trademark on it. <laughs> now, Hank Aaron didn't say anything. But when the next pitch came, he clobbered it into the left field bleachers. And he rounded the bases and he tagged home plate. And then Aaron looked at Yogi Berra and he said, I didn't come up here to read. <laughs> it's a well-made point. <laughs> the things in this life that matter, the things that really matter, require focus, Right? If you want to be, let's say, a world-class guitarist, you've got to spend hours playing the guitar. Or if you want, a, uh, let's say, a football scholarship, you better be hitting the gym. You better be catching passes and making tackles. Success in anything requires dedication. But most of us spend a lot of our time majoring in the minors. We pursue things that don't really matter now, that's not to say that, that we shouldn't make time for rest and relaxation. We should. I believe that. There's a time for Sabbath rest. Everybody needs it. That's how God designed us. But too often, we're chasing things 
in our spare time that have no lasting value. We think very little about how we're spending our time until we start nearing the end of our lives. And then we wish that we had all that time back. And Paul wanted Timothy to have a different mindset. I'm going to tear off the corner of my packet here. Makes it a little easier to flip. Now, before we dig into this passage just this morning, I want to, uh, I want, uh, to say a couple of things here. First of all, when we interpret the Bible, a lot of us um, just sort of dive in and we like, some people, this is how they do it. They open up the Bible and they kind of point a finger and say, ah, oh, this is God's word for me today. And they read a verse with no thought as to why it's there or what it means. When we interpret the Bible, we have to remember that God's word to us was, first of all, God's word to them back then. Okay? This is important. It was, first of all, God's word to that original audience. If we want to understand what the Bible means for us today, then we have to do the work of understanding what it meant to them back then. This is non-negotiable. Okay, you can't just pick and choose a verse and pull it out of context and say, this is what it means. You have to understand why it's there in the first place. All right? So in this case, we have to understand what this passage meant for Timothy and Paul. When we talk about reading the Bible in context, that's what we mean. For example, I'll give you an example here. If I told you, after I'm done at the mill, I'm going to go to Giant Eagle to pick up some chipped ham and jumbo hoagies. What did I just say? Now, most of you in this room know what I said, right? If you're from Pittsburgh, you know I just said that after I'm done working at the steel factory, I'm going to go to the grocery store to buy some subs with thinly sliced ham and bologna on them, right? We all know that's what I meant. But if you're from New York or even... If you're from Paris in the 1800s, you'd have no idea what I just said. You'd say, what? Jumbo? Mill? Right? Hoagie? There's a distance in time and in culture and sometimes even in language when we're, all right? So, so listen, that's why before we dig into scripture, it's our job to do a little bit of homework, to understand the context of the people who wrote it. Once we've done that, we can determine what things were unique to their situation and what principles are timeless for all of us as believers. And we did some of that work last week, right? We know that Paul wrote this letter from a Roman prison at the end of his life. We know that Timothy grew up in a Christian home with a Christian grandma and a Christian mom. We also know he was a little bit timid, a little bit on the shy side. We know that persecution was becoming a really big problem at that time. This week, you should also know that Timothy was the pastor of a church in Ephesus, a church that was having some problems of its own. The Ephesians had struggled for a while with false teaching. If you look at Paul's first letter to Timothy, you see there that people were making a lot of speculation about the Bible. Some of them were pretending to have knowledge that they didn't have. And this led to some of them becoming arrogant. Some of them became greedy. Now, listen, folks, for those of you who have never pastored a church, which is most of us, 
It's not fun trying to lead a congregation with those sorts of problems. It's exhausting. Listen, even on the best days, it's exhausting being a pastor. But when you got a church that's got issues, ooh, look out. It's not fun, right? It's not a nine-to-five job. I always laugh when people think that pastors work just on Sundays. Oh, my, no, 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 no. (laughs) It's a 24-7 job. There's never rest. (laughs) There's always something calling for your attention. And if you're already prone to being on the timid side, like Timothy, it can be overwhelming. Knowing that, Paul's words to Timothy are going to make a lot more sense to us. So let's look at our passage today. You can go to Timothy chapter 2 if you have your Bibles. If not, we're going to splash it up on the screen, I believe. Timothy, 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting with verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Remember last week, Paul said that God did not give Christians a spirit of what? Fear. God did not give Christians a spirit of fear, but his spirit gives us, remember, power, love, sound mind. Some translations say self-control or self-discipline. Right. And Paul is going to pick up on that same thread of dependency on God when he tells Timothy to, in verse 1, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Our own strength, how many know this? Our own strength is not up to the task of serving Jesus. Our own strength will fail us. Timothy had an unruly congregation. He had persecution looming on the horizon. Digging deep into himself was not going to cut it. You know, the world likes to tell us, if you believe it, you can achieve it, don't they? You can do anything you set your mind to, but motivational quotes, you know, they might look nice on an office poster, but in reality, they're not very helpful, are they? Folks, I've got some bad news for you. You can't do anything you set your mind to. You are one person. You are a mere mortal You have all the weaknesses that come with being a flawed, sinful human being. But you know what else I know? I know that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And I know that God's grace is sufficient for you and that his power is made perfect in your weaknesses. See, God has given his people the monumental task of taking the good news to the whole world, of making disciples out of people who don't know him yet. Can I tell you a little secret? For us pastors, that can be a terrifying thought. It's a lot of responsibility. How do we set the example and equip all of you to share the message of Jesus? How do we do it? It feels, and I was going to bring a spoon with me, but it feels a little bit like if you were standing in front of a big pile of dirt, with a spoon in your hand and being told, build a skyscraper, and all I've got is a spoon. (laughs) How's that going to work? I can't even build a sandcastle with a spoon, right? But you see, that's a faulty thought because the foreman, Jesus, owns a bulldozer, and he owns a crane, 
And he has power tools, and he's got the steel beams, and he's got the rivets, and he's got the sheet metal and the glass. He's got everything you need to get the job done. He has all the resources. And when the time comes, he will equip you, and he'll send other people to help you to get the job done. So God gives us strength by grace in Christ Jesus. Grace means, anyone remember what that means? Fancy word we like to use in church, but we don't always know what it means. It means unmerited, I heard it somewhere, unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. We do nothing to earn it, just like we do nothing to earn our salvation. It comes from Jesus alone. But because it comes from Jesus, it also means that all Christians have access to it. Every one of us has access to God's enabling power. So once again, Paul wants to preface all of his instructions to Timothy with reliance on God's grace and power. And now that he's done that, he's going to share three ways in which Timothy and all of us can faithfully serve Jesus. Let's look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, The things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. So the first thing that Paul wants Timothy to remember is this. Faithful Christian service means carefully passing on the truth. Faithful Christian service means carefully passing on the truth. See, the, the gospel that Paul was preaching was no secret, right? We read here that Timothy had heard that gospel in the presence of many witnesses. But over the years, false teachers had taken Paul's words, had twisted them, turned them around, or even taught things that were just completely contrary to what Paul was teaching. But Paul had spent time pouring his knowledge and his wisdom into Timothy. He saw in Timothy a person who could be trustworthy, with biblical truth. But he also knew that Timothy was just one person. The truth had to be passed on to trustworthy people who would do the same with it. Uh, as most of you know, I'm, I'm a chaplain down at Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh, and I work with some really amazing doctors, uh, doctors who are at the very top of their fields. One of the units that I'm a chaplain, that I'm a chaplain for is the cardiac ICU. And that it's considered the number two pediatric cardiac unit in the country and one of the very best in the world. And, um, you know, the, these surgeons that I, that I work with, they do incredible work. Heart and lung transplants. They rearrange the anatomy of defective hearts. They bring people really back from the brink of death. And I can remember one time one of my patients in the ICU went into cardiac arrest, and I was with the mom and the grandma of this patient at that time. And, you know, the, the heart monitor began to flatline. And they panicked. Mom and grandma just panicked. And I, I kind of ushered them out of the room because I knew there was going to be some activity. And I just sat with them as they just cried and cried. And as they're standing outside the room just weeping, suddenly a wave of doctors and nurses just rush into the room. Um, they're weaving in and out of that room in sort of a complex dance. 
Not really bumping into each other, but just in and out. They're bagging him. They're placing lines. They're administering medication. And it was all in one incredible coordinated effort. It's hard to explain it if you haven't seen it in action. They saved his life that day. They brought him back. And uh, it turns out he went on to get his lung transplant that he needed. And, uh, you know, imagine now, if you would, that none of that incredible knowledge was passed on. None of that knowledge that these doctors and nurses have was passed on. What would happen if they stopped sharing it, stopped entrusting it to new doctors and nurses? We'd be in pretty big trouble, right? Things would get pretty ugly pretty fast. And you know what, folks? The gospel is no different. Well, actually, it is a little bit different because the knowledge that we're entrusted with deals with people's eternal well-being. So Paul knew that if the gospel was going to survive him, Timothy needed to be ready to pass it on. And the people that he passed it on to needed to be trustworthy and capable of passing it on. The truth that we've received, the truth that you and I know, that we've heard preached from the pulpit, that we've heard in our classes, is the legacy of countless pastors and disciples of Jesus who have passed that truth on for centuries, going all the way back to Paul and Peter and the other disciples and even back to Jesus himself. The godly heritage, that godly heritage has led to this moment in time here in the present day. Here's the thing. Pastor Dan won't always be here. Pastor Nate won't always be here. We're just links in the chain preaching the truth so that you and you and you and you can carry it forward. Now, please don't go spreading rumors, okay? Pastor Dan and Pastor Nate are leaving us. That's not what I said. Don't, don't go starting that, <laughs> okay? But that day will come sooner or later, whether God calls us elsewhere or God calls us home. In the meantime, it is our job to teach you all. It's our job to mentor you and the job of our elders to mentor you so that you can begin pouring the truth of the gospel of Jesus into others. It's your responsibility to pass on your faith to your children, your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers, and to teach them how to do the same. That's how this thing called Christian faith works. Jesus said, go therefore and make what? Disciples. Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Now, maybe you've never heard this. Sometimes I take for granted that, that people in church have heard these things, right? But maybe, you, maybe you've never heard it, but there's a big difference between a convert and a disciple. Disciples reproduce themselves. They make more disciples. They multiply. Converts don't do that. They might acknowledge the truth, but they don't do anything with it. We are called to be disciples, to know the truth, to understand the truth, to pass on the truth. So ask yourself this morning, am I a convert or am I a disciple? Do I just acknowledge the truth and sit on it? Or has the truth impacted my life and I'm out trying to make more disciples? Folks, this is not something just for pastors. We've got to get away from that mentality that the work of the ministry is done by the people who stand up here. False. Totally false. 
Faithful Christian service, point one, faithful Christian service means carefully passing on the truth. Let's look at verse three now. Verse three says, join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. So the second thing here that Paul wants Timothy to remember is this. Faithful Christian service means embracing hardship. Faithful Christian service means embracing hardship. Suffering has become really something of a dirty word in a lot of churches. Like it's somehow incompatible with a victorious Christian life. How many here believe that God can heal? Okay. How many here believe that God can provide? How many here believe that God can move mountains? Good. Me too. Okay. He can do all those things. His word makes that very, very clear. Oftentimes he does. We've seen him work miracles in our own church. In the Pentecostal tradition, which we are a part of, we believe that God is still in the business of doing miracles. That didn't end with the apostles, contrary to what some people like to claim. That is still for today. But Scripture also makes clear that persecution and suffering are a normal part of the Christian experience too. At least 25 times in the New Testament alone, Paul says to join in his suffering. Why is that? Did Paul not believe his own words? How many of you have ever been uh, to a water park and gone on the lazy river? Right? Yeah, yeah, okay. So, so listen, I'm, I'm in my 40s now, and I love the lazy river because, well, it's lazy, <laughs> right? Um, but I also have five kids who have way more energy than I do. And sometimes they like to goof around and try going in the opposite direction that the lazy river is flowing, Have you ever done that? It's not not enjoyable to do that because the flow of the river is pushing you in the other direction. And then you get a bunch of other tube riders coming at you and they're all irritated because you're going the wrong way. Scientifically, we might call that friction. Friction is the resistance that one surface or object encounters when moving against another When two objects that are opposing each other come into contact with one another, it generates friction and heat. And when the systems of this world meet Christians who are moving the other direction toward Jesus, there is going to be, you guessed it, yeah, friction and heat. It's going to get a little bit uncomfortable. So when Paul tells Timothy to join him in suffering like a good soldier of Jesus, there should be no surprise. Suffering is just a part of the package. We have to understand this. 
Suffering is not a lack of faith. Suffering is not um, something that is contrary to serving Jesus. It happens because Jesus and the kingdom of God are moving in the opposite direction of the way the world is going. There's going to be friction. Now, here's another thing. Sometimes the struggles that we face are self-imposed struggles because of our duty to Jesus. And Paul uses three different pictures here of some of these self-imposed struggles that Christians face. First of all, we have this picture of the soldier. Soldiers have a duty to their commanding officer, first and foremost, right? Other obligations take a back seat to that. Paul says that no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. Now, that word entangled in Greek is the word empleko, empleko. It means to get weaved in or enmeshed with something else. How many of you have ever done any sort of weaving or braiding, right? When you, when you weave or braid multiple threads together, you take one thread and then you weave it with two, three, or more threads once you've done that, how easy is it to pull that first thread out? It's virtually impossible, right, without breaking it. Now, the soldier of Jesus understands this. We may interact with the world. We might enjoy military leave from time to time, right? But our duty is to Jesus first. We don't get caught up in distractions from that duty, right? We want to please him above all. The second picture Paul gives us is the picture of an athlete. In the, in the ancient Olympic Games, now we just had the Olympics, right? We had the Winter Olympics. In the ancient Olympic Games, there were no gold, silver, or bronze medals. Did you know that? There was only one prize for each game. The athletes competed for an olive leaf crown, an olive leaf crown. It was a symbol of honor, high honor. Uh, one of the ancient historians, a guy by the name of Herodotus, you don't have to remember that name. I can barely say it. <laughs> but does anyone here know, he, he tells the story about the olive leaf crown. Here, who here knows the story of the 300 Spartans? You ever heard that story? There was a movie on it some years back. And I think, uh, oh, who was the guy? Gerard Butler, I think, was the guy who played the lead Spartan commander. And in that story, there were 300 Spartans in, in what was called the Battle of Thermopylae. Uh, the Persian king Xerxes, now you might remember Xerxes' name from the book of Esther, right? The Persian king Xerxes wanted to conquer Greece, but 300 Spartans stood in his way. Xerxes had thousands of troops at his command, and yet the Spartans, with only 300 men, fought him anyway. 299 out of the 300 died, but they took thousands of Persians with them. Now afterwards, that's a cool story, but that's not the point of the story. Afterwards, Xerxes asked why there were so few Greek men defending Thermopylae. And the answer that he got was that all the other men were over at the Olympic Games, participating in the games. And when he asked, well, what's the prize for the winner? Like, why in the world would they be competing, you know, for, 
for, for the games. It must be some really great prize if they're not here to defend their homeland. And the answer that he got was they're competing for an olive wreath <laughs> because it symbolized honor and virtue. One of his generals exclaimed, good heavens, what kind of men are these that you have brought us to fight? Men who do not compete for possessions, but for honor and virtue. The athlete who is seeking that ultimate honor that's so important is not going to do anything to ruin his chances, is he? He's going to train hard. In the ancient Olympics, you had to train for a minimum of 10 months to enter the games. It was grueling. But they believed that the reward was worth it. And so it is for the person who wants to please Jesus. And finally, we have the picture of the farmer that Paul gives us. The farmer spends months preparing the soil, planting the seeds, keeping them watered. And after all that hard work, it's only right that he gets the first share of the crops. But the hard work must come first. You have to take labor and difficulties along with the reward. So number two, faithful Christian service means embracing hardship. And then lastly, we're going to look here at the last few verses. Verse 8, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here is a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Last thing we need to take away from our passage this morning is this. Faithful Christian service means keeping your eyes on the prize. Faithful Christian service means keeping your eyes on the prize. How do we endure hardship on behalf of Jesus? By keeping our eyes on what really matters. So what really matters? Paul tells us there are three prizes, so to speak, that we need to remember. First, Paul says that Timothy needs to remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. Why is that significant? Why, why would he put that in there? Paul's reminding Timothy here of, of who Jesus really is, both God and man, raised from the dead, which only God can do, and descended from David, so he's also human like one of us. He's telling Timothy, never ever forget that the gospel is centered on Jesus, the risen Messiah. Jesus is the prize. He can save you and satisfy you like nothing else can. Second, Paul tells us that one of those prizes, again, so to speak, is that he endures everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now, there's debate on what the, that term, the elect, means. Uh, Calvinists will say that the elect are those people that God chooses to save out of his grace and that he doesn't choose to save everyone, which is what makes them elect. And in the assemblies, we believe that the elect 
are simply those whom God, in his omniscience, in his foreknowledge, knew would come to Jesus when the Spirit wooed them. Now, let me be clear on this. This, this is not a salvation issue, right? This is not a heresy issue. You can believe one or the other and still be Christian, right? We can still hug our Reformed Baptist friends down the street <laughs> as Christian brothers and sisters. But we would argue that it's pretty tough getting motivated to share the gospel with people if they really have no choice in their salvation. Amen? It would be even harder to endure suffering if the people that we were suffering for had no choice in the matter. And we believe that that's why Paul says, I endure everything for the elect, that they may obtain salvation. Your friends, your family, your neighbors are all doomed to eternal separation from God without Jesus. And so we have the enormous responsibility and privilege of sharing Jesus with them. Knowing that their eternal destiny is at stake should get us off of our rear ends, throw caution to the wind, and serve with our whole hearts. And the third prize that we should keep our eyes on is our own eternal destiny. Paul closes with a very uh, poetic statement here that, that we believe might have been some sort of early hymn in the church. He said, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithful, faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. These beautiful words are, are a promise that begin with consolation and then moves to, to warning and then back to consolation. If we died with Jesus, in other words, if we've put our faith in him and we've died to our sin and died to ourselves, then we will live with him in eternity. If we persevere, through the brief sufferings of this life, we're going to reign with him one day in glory. If we deny him on earth, he's going to deny us before God. If we're faith, faithless, meaning that if we slip up and make mistakes, he's still faithful and he's still just and he'll still forgive us our sins when we come to him in repentance. We might cling to him, but he clings to us even tighter. These are the prizes for those who serve him faithfully. I'm going to have Joel come back up at this time. You know, we talked a, a few moments ago about the Olympic Games. In ancient Greece, when they had these games, there was a, uh, there was a traditional relay race called the Lampa de Dromia. The Lampa de Dromia. In this race, the runners held a torch and passed it on to the next runner until the final member of the team crossed the finish line. The prize didn't go to the fastest team. It went to the first team who crossed the finish line with their torch still lit. Now you could see where the modern Olympics gets that from, right? When they have the torch route and they take it all the way to the Olympics trying to make sure the flame doesn't go out. There's a lesson here. It's important to run the race, but it's even more important to finish with our torches still lit. When we serve Christ, there's going to be struggles. We're going to get frustrated. We might even take some detours that we didn't intend to take. But as we persevere, our goal is to keep our flame lit, no matter how many obstacles we run into. 
In Matthew 24, 13, Jesus said, the one who endures to the end will be saved. As you endure this morning, remember what faithful Christian service really means. It means one, carefully passing on the truth that's been entrusted to you. Two, it means embracing hardship. And three, it means keeping your eyes on the prize. Amen. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, these are challenging words. But the truth is we live in challenging times. Lord, we recognize that our world is in more desperate need than ever of the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's not for a select few to share that good news. It's for every single one of us who claim to follow Christ. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that you would challenge us to serve faithfully, to persevere, that you'd help each of us to not just be converts, but to be disciples who are dedicated to passing on the truth that's been entrusted to us. Lord, I pray, too, that you would help us to embrace hardship. That doesn't mean that you can't do miracles. You certainly do. And we will continue to seek miracles. We will continue to seek you to move mountains, to heal, to raise the dead, to make a way where there is no way. But we also recognize that we live in a world that is opposed to the kingdom of God. And because we're part of that kingdom, we're going to face some opposition. There's going to be some trouble. So, Lord, give us courage to face it. Help us to embrace that hardship. And finally, Lord, I pray that you would help us to keep our eyes on the prize. Help us to remember what this Christian life is all about. First of all, it's all about Jesus. He is the prize. He's the treasure that we get to enjoy one day in eternity. Fellowship with him. One of the other prizes is those who still haven't heard the gospel. Someone once said, Lord, that, that there are two things that last forever, God and people. And so, Lord, we recognize that people are one of those prizes, and we want to take as many with, of them with us into eternity. So, Lord, help us to keep our eyes on that prize. And, Lord, help us to keep our eyes on the prize of our own eternal destiny. If we die with you, we'll also live with you. If we endure, we'll reign with you. You are faithful to us. And so, Lord, I pray you would help us to remember this life is just temporary, but heaven is forever. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would seal this word in our hearts today. Lord, I pray that you'd be with us as we go from this place. And we pray it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And everyone said, amen, amen. God bless you guys as you go today. Hope to see you next week, and we will continue in this series. God bless you all.